here's Parks Associates Smart Tech Check podcast with Mark Vina. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, leader of Parks Associates Smart Home Research Practice, and welcome to the Smart Tech Check podcast, where we cover all tech topics that are smart home, home automation, security, console gaming, and much, much more. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. We've got lots to chat about today, as always. On the roster for today's podcast are my usual partners in crime on this podcast. That's Rob Pegarero, who writes for USA Today and Fast Company uh, and uh, Wirecutter. Uh, John Quain, who writes on technology for the New York Times and Tom's Guide. And America's favorite favorite baseball historian, uh, Stuart Walpin, who writes for Twice and Techlicious. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Lots and lots to talk about today. Um, what I'd like to do uh, is I, I, I started this last week with the, uh, a podcast I did with the, um, the, the Parks Associate team that we did on, um, on entertainment. And that is I want to tee up kind of a factoid that uh, some data and just get kind of your reaction to. I mean, as all of you have worked with Parks Associates in the past and uh, we're just a incredible reservoir of um, great consumer insights and information. And I want to tee up uh, something that it was kind of interesting, I thought, is that we recently did uh, some, uh, released some research that indicates that, and got no surprise, but it wraps some numbers around it, that uh, folks are spending less money per month on cord cutting uh, than they were before versus their uh, their cable company or their traditional pay TV service to the tune of um, $85 uh, versus uh, uh, they're spending about $30 less now for cord cutting. I want to just get Rob's perspective because each of you are cord cutters to varying levels. Um, I want to get Rob's, uh, what's your reaction to this, Rob? Does it surprise you or does the magnitude of No, not at all. I was actually very happy to see that number come out since it, it matched what I've seen, what I've heard. And every time I've spot checked, you know, you might think that the advertised rate from Comcast or whoever is going to save you money, but that advertised rate it doesn't include the the local t- t- TV station fee, the broadcast fee, the regional sports network fee, what it costs to put a box under at least one TV, maybe two or three, and all those things that you don't have in streaming TV. And the other part of it, there's always this line of thought that oh, by the time you add in all these services you're going to watch, you're spending just as much as you did before. You know, <laughs> if you actually need to watch 150 channels of stuff. You should probably stick with pay TV as it is. You don't need to cut the cord. Most people don't have that kind of free time. So it says to me that people are being intelligent consumers and saving money in a way that works for them. Well, and and, and uh, most of the research indicates that um, that people, even when they subscribe to 150, 200 channels, are only they're watching the same 15, 20 channels at the most. 90 percent of the time, they don't realize that, and the cable companies don't want to tell you that because you'll you'll start to figure things out that you're probably oversubscribing to many channels. But uh, Stuart, let me get your reaction to uh, this uh, Parks Associated factoid. Well, my, my first reaction is what does that cord cutter number include? I mean, with the number of streaming subscriptions services now available, is that number going to go up and at some point pass perhaps the amount of money that people are spending right now just on plain ordinary cable. I think we had this discussion last week about how many subscription services will people subscribe to. And given the growing number of them 
and the basic cable that you almost have to have these days if you want to get, as Rob said, local news and local uh, local programming and local sports, especially since you, for most major sports, are now on cable. I'm just curious what that figure that the um, that people are spending after their cord cutting, how much what that includes and how much that might go up given the amount of streaming services that are out there that they may still want to subscribe to. Well, you'll, you'll have to subscribe to the Parks Associates report for me to tell you that answer, Stuart, just to be clear. But all kidding aside, our research has been showing us that people are still stacking multiple services on top of each other. That number really hasn't declined yet. Uh, and um, again, but you have to carve into the data um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they, they describe themselves as cord cutters, yet they still have basic cable because they want to watch local sports. They get, want to get local weather, uh, local news, which tends to be a very important um, uh, uh, requirement for many cord cutters. Um, uh, Stuart, have you cut the cord? I don't think you've cut the cord, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. You haven't cut I, the cord. I have cord. not. I mean, I write about this stuff like all you guys do or cover all these things. So I feel it incumbent upon myself to have access to as much as possible just so I can speak knowledgeably about it. I, I've considered cutting it because almost all the movies that I ever watch are now on streaming rather than on cable. But again, it's like, I'm, as you say, I'm a baseball fan and I need to get in, in the New York area. I need to get SNY. I need to get Yes. I would have missed the Kansas City game last night, uh, which was was really amazing at the end if you stayed up late to watch it. Um, okay. I can't afford to lose that. <laughs> and and Stuart, you're not an old person, even though you you've referred to movies to me that uh, you've referred to movies as talkies. They used to watch those movies a long time ago when they were called talkies. That's an inside joke. Nobody gets it if you're if you're under 35 years old. You probably don't understand what a talkie was. Anyway, bad <laughs> joke aside, John, your reaction to um, this uh, data point? Well, I, I think you know it, it, these. Uh, what it points to is uh, the disputes that are going on now. You know, you have Sinclair. Uh, fighting with Dish about their local affiliates and stuff. I think places like Sinclair are in trouble. If they didn't have the tennis channel, they wouldn't have anything. I mean, I, you know, most of us can put an antenna and get like 50 stations in most urban environments stuck in the window. So, and in New York City, I just look out my window and I see a lot of people have done exactly that. And you would think, oh, it's impossible to get a TV station here over the air. Actually, it's really easy even in these concrete canyons. So it's, a, it's interesting. I think, you know, um, that those stations are going to have more and more trouble uh, because it used to be you needed the path, what we called in broadcast TV. We needed a path onto the cable carriers. Uh, and I think some of these companies are forgetting that. So we'll see how that dispute works out. Um, Dish has held out a long time against some of these channels, like for years. And I think they're going to get more desperate and need to be on there. And and I don't want to pay that extra amount of money, too. I know as people cut down, as you said, the basic cable, uh, they keep dropping as many stations as we can and get away with. And I've done the same thing. But, you know, you know, it's shocking to me because you brought up the issue around OTA over the air um, broadcast is that the reason why many people. First of all, there's a lot of people that don't know that they can get OTA channels for free. And, and, and by the way, you get all your local news that way. You get the local affiliates, which is great. But right. I, I have to tell you, you know, if you just do the old-fashioned thing where I plug an antenna into a digital tuner on my on all, all the new TVs for the last 20 years that have digital tuners, right. it's not exactly the greatest experience. I mean, they, you know, you, you get a minimum grid 
Um, and there are solutions out there. Like for example, Pablo makes a terrific, um, uh, makes a terrific OTA tuner. And that's not a tuner, but it's a product that essentially once you type in your zip code, it tells you what local channels you get and you get kind of a familiar matrix based cable guide. So I always tell people that hey, if you're going to cut the, uh, cut the cord and do the OTA thing, make sure you just, you're just not plugging antenna in because in many cases you're going to want DVR capability, which by the way, with that, not that I'm doing a, a commercial for uh, Tableau, but that, was, that is a product out there that'll get, that gives you cloud-based uh, DVR functionality for OTA programs, which is very, very convenient. But uh, it's interesting, interesting to me. Let's, uh, let's hit the first topic that I want to, um, we want to discuss. And <laughs> Stuart, this is, this is your topic. Uh, should the internet social media be regulated? And I know you want a big switch in your house and you want to be able to pull it every time you object to a certain piece of social media. That's what you get. <laughs> your definition of regulating. Correct? Am I correct? Well, I mean, I, I've been doing some research on this. And of course, the, the, the idea of should we, as well as could we, as well as can we, have always popped up. The thing that, that, disturbed me the most and is probably the most insolvable, quite frankly, is access. Um, I, I had an email correspondence with the folks at ICON about uh, two or three months ago and asking them about, about how are there any restrictions or verification or anything for people of trying to get a domain or getting on the internet to begin with, because I think, you know, it's sort of like Twitter can say, we don't want you on here. But there is no sort of regulatory agency that says if you've committed a crime, you don't get to get a domain. And mm -hmm. as a result, that I think is the the open floodgate that has caused every all the other problems going. Now, I don't know that that problem is solvable. I don't know if there's an international body that can put their foot down and go, if you've done X, you can't do Y. And I don't even know if there should be, but that is, I think, the biggest, is the biggest gaping hole um, in, in the problems that we're experiencing now. The, the, I think the problems are twofold. I think legislators, well, threefold, actually. One, legislators are stupid. I mean, uh, when Orrin Hatch asked Mark Zuckerberg, how does Facebook make money? I think everybody in the tech industry's mouth just fell, um, including Zuckerberg's visibly when you watch the video of it. Um, and they all seem to be focused on two things. One, freedom of speech. And two, what's, we, what's known as Section 230 which is part of the uh, obscenity law from 1996 that exempted online media where they were presenting medical information and things like that that might include, uh, shall we say, objectionable material. Um, and, and so what the legislators want to do is, is throw out the baby with the bathwater and get rid of Section 230, which would open up all social media uh, companies to being sued. Um, and the way that I look at, at this is that newspapers, I mean, you're, right now you're having Dominion suing a lot of some of the right-wing channels, but organized mainstream media 
has certain rules that are attached to it in terms of whether or not it, they could be sued or not, you know, absence of malice, that sort of thing. Right. Whereas the, um, the internet and social media sites are treated more like physical bulletin boards you see in a supermarket. Anybody can come in and tack stuff up on the bulletin board. And if the supermarket owner says, I don't like that on my bulletin board, he can take it down and is not liable for anything that goes up there. And I think those are the two buckets that, the, that Section 230 is is switching between. So the question is, is there a way of skirting, of, of not violating the First Amendment, government coming in and censoring? And two, is there a way of protecting people from what is put on the internet? And I don't think throwing out Section 230 is part of it. Well, let me, and I want, what I want to do is I want to uh, kick this over to, to uh, Rob, because Rob, I know you'll have an opinion on this. Believe it or not, and you, Bob, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the internet, and this is a very broad statement, there are mechanisms within the federal government, probably the Defense Department, that if they, if in the national emergency, if they had to shut down the internet or restrict the internet, that capability does exist. I mean, they, they, and not to say that whatever happened, God forbid, for a whole bunch of different reasons, but you know, it's not. You know, a lot of people think, well, the internet really can't be regulated or controlled absolutely because it's so wide open, and that's the way it was designed. You know, uh, thirty years ago, but it is possible because we do have the ability to uh, to uh, shut down parts of the internet around the world with with some of the um, uh, countries that we're not very fond of, and that may or may not have happened over the last year or so. But what's your angle on that from a government standpoint? Because that is a key issue. So a lot of things to unpack there. So about what you were just saying, that is something that the current acting commission chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, Jessica Rosenworcel, spoke about at a conference in D.C., one of the last ones I went to, IRL, in I think February of 2019, pointing out that this authority, whoever evanescent and untested it might be, is there in the books, and we should probably get rid of that. In practical terms, like, no, you know, uh, the, the Castroist regime in Cuba is trying to cut off the internet. It is a common tactic of authoritarians and dictators everywhere. In practice, it is difficult to do, especially if you want to have a functioning economy and a functioning society. So, yeah, setting that aside, uh, the basic answer, you know, what can you do about sites that publish bad things within the framework of American <laughs> law? Not much, because the First Amendment doesn't just protect my right to say what I think. It also means you can't make me publish someone else's thoughts. I mean, we're all freelance writers here. <laughs> if we could bring a First Amendment case against every editor who wouldn't publish our words and is for them, we might be in good shape, but probably the whole... <laughs> Uh, news industry would succumb under a wave of lawsuits. So the idea that you can just say, you know, you can't publish things that aren't true. Who decides? You know, you must publish things unless you know they're not true. Who decides? And Section 230, although a lot of people don't like it, it was written with the idea of encouraging sites, social yeah. forums, online platforms, to moderate aggressively as they saw fit. That's why that otherwise objectionable clause is in there. You can say, you know, yes, you have a First Amendment right to be a Nazi. I don't have to publish that. So therefore, you're gone and you can't say anything about it. And every proposal to reform Section 230 to allow for viewpoint diversity 
in practice is going to mean making the web safe for Nazis again, which yes. I think we all agree is not going to be that great. Well, you know what I'm, I like to say? You know, the, answer to, um, the answer to bad speech is more speech. Um, is a commonplace thing, but John, you're you're chopping at the bit. You want to say I'm something. chopping at the bit here because this is not a complicated issue, and it's all <laughs> about it's all about money, right? We are regulated. Everything I do is regulated. Every radio segment I do, every broadcast news segment I do, everything I publish, all regulated. It's just that they didn't want to regulate these new guys who were had this new thing. Well, now it's not new anymore. Facebook is like the New York Times. Twitter is like CBS News. No question about it. No debate about it. They just don't want to be regulated by the, run by the same regulations, right? There are rules about what I can say on the air. There are rules about what I can do on the air and in print and online. Same rules need to apply to them. And Section 230, it's history, guys. It's already gone. There's no question. Bipartisan. They're going to take it out. All the lawyers in D.C. are working on this. They know it's gone. The question is, what kind of regulations can they get away with? You know, can they just the trouble is Facebook and Twitter don't want to hire people. Right. If they if these regulations that apply to us apply to them, they'll have to hire a lot more people and they don't want to do that. So that's really it's not a free speech issue. It's you know, you can still put up your own domain name and do whatever you want. But in terms of places like Facebook and Twitter, the regulations that apply to us need to apply to them. Yeah, I'm, well, but I will go back to what Rob said because he, I think he made a, a very persuasive point in that, you know, who is the judge? You know, when you have private companies making judgment calls, and by the way, let us it's not a left or right issue for me. It's an issue about, I mean, over the last year, I can rattle off a whole number of issues that the press and the social media companies portrayed as fake news and bad information and, God forbid, we should let the un uh, unwashed masses consume it. And then you find out six months or a year, fast forward, oh, well, there may have been some truth to that information. So I, I get very antsy around companies that they want to hide behind Section 230, but at the same time, uh, they want to, uh, they, they're afraid of being regulated. So I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm a big believer that the answer to um, bad speech or um, erroneous speech or, or hate speech, whatever you want to call it, is more speech, you know, and uh, anyway. But we'll I think, but there's one thing, and that's the pandemic has proven that that's a bad idea, right? right. And we were, doing, we were doing fine before the internet. I have to be honest about this, right? We had a free press in the United States. We are doing pretty good before. There's I nothing particularly special about this. Led by a bunch of white guys. So let's not go too far about that. Uh, the <laughs> pandemic is a great example because if you want to say that vaccine disinformation, anti-vaxxing should be regulated, well, then why would it be forbidden for Facebook to carry it? But Fox News can continue to pay Tucker Carlson, whatever much he's paid, to spout off about how you can't trust the vaccines. They're being rushed, blah, blah, blah. Um you know, th this is the First Amendment does allow a lot of crap, but it beats the alternative. Well, I'm just a big believer, guys. We got to hit the next topic. Yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a big believer that the, the best way to regulate information, the best uh, uh, entity to regulate information is your brain. You know, I want to have access to all the different sources of information and then make the final judgment call on what I'm going to um, comprehend and help me form my judgments. But I digress. 
Um, Rob, this is right in your wheelhouse because we've <laughs> talked about this many, many times. I know you've upgraded to every TV in your home is an AK <laughs> TV. I know you spent a hundred grand and every TV in your house is now AK. But um, I think it is an interesting point because AK still is kind of looming out there. And, you know, I think the question here, does it really matter at this point? I mean, broadcast television still is not in, 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 in true um, in many ways. It's not, certainly not in AK. Uh, and in many cases, it's not even in 4K, depending on the channel that you're accessing. So, What's your take on AK? I mean, are you uh Oh, no, I won't. I don't waste the money. You know, if you can actually fit an 80-inch TV into your house and you accept that this AK resolution will really only appear to you as upconverted footage from a 4K or even an HD source, and I guess 8K footage you shoot yourself and, you know, photo slideshows. A lot of people, I mean, I live in a 101-year-old house. <laughs> the only place I'm going to fit an 80-inch TV is if I suspend it from a ceiling someplace and get rid of a light fixture in the process. Uh, <laughs> no. and, and the notion that this is the next new thing, that's a load of garbage. It's the next new thing the same way like uh, DVD audio is the next new thing in audio. audio. And I'm told there was a thing called quadraphonic sound when I was in my, my infancy, and, and that didn't take over. So, you know, let the video files have this toy to play with, but let's not be serious that this is going to be any sort of mainstream format. Uh, you know, the best case is maybe the screen gets so cheap to make that it becomes a standard like 4K that most people, how much 4K footage do you think people actually watch on their 4K TVs versus HD, same as ever? Right. John? Uh, I'm I, unfortunately you know, like I'm the TV guy. Full disclosure, right for Tom's guide. I I have eight TVs in my house. I have two here that I'm testing. Um, are uh, you know, and th and they're just starting to come out with the 8K. Like the same arguments made about 4K. Oh, we don't need it. Oh, we don't notice the difference. And now every TV is 4K. Um, I think it's inevitable. It's also part of the technology, the display technology with micro LEDs coming up and uh, some other things to compete against OLED, I think 8K is inevitable. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't need an 80 inch TV for me to see the difference, but, you know, today a 65 inch TV is the norm and that's huge. I mean, that's a huge TV. I, I went to my first hotel room this week in like 15 months on a business trip and there was a 65 inch TV at the end of the bed. I mean, oh my gosh, it was huge. So, you know, even if we, the programming is not there at all yet, and who knows how long the programming will take to come along, but the TVs are coming, whether we like it or not. <laughs> Just well, and, and, and Stuart, this is in your wheelhouse because, you know, I, I know you'll appreciate this, and so will Rob and John. Once, you, you know, for me, and I wish my father had lived to see. 4K because he died around 2001 where, you know, the, the uh, even HD had not made its appearance yet. Right. He thought a 30, he thought a 32 inch TV was a big TV, a Sony Trinitron. <laughs> but once you watch a ball game, a football game or a baseball game in 4K on a 65 inch or larger screen, you'll never leave the house. In fact, right. when I watch <laughs> when I watch old games on YouTube, which I frequently do, you know, I bring you know my New York Giants memories, I'll bring a game back from 20 years ago. I almost can't watch it. You know, and, and because because the, the format was low res, and of course it wasn't um, it wasn't um, uh, sixteen by nine, so it's it's just a different experience. And Stuart Sports has a lot to play with; uh, has 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 had a big impact on driving people 
toward 4K. Do you see that happening in, uh, with, with AK sports? Well, right you- now, I, I, think a, I think a lot of this conversation is less about resolution and more about bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Um, 4K is a very hefty file to stream already. And you need a minimum, I think Netflix requires 24 megabit per second connectivity, which a lot of America still doesn't have. I mean, it exacerbates to a certain extent they haven't had not in the digital divide. Um, so a lot about 8K is is about content. I think the Olympics, the 2020 Olympics, was an um, um, HK was uh, recording them all in 8K for future 8K consumption. And Japan NHK has always been ahead of the curve on all of this. Um, and so I think bandwidth is the most important because right now on the broadcast side, the ATSC 3.0 standard is just now being able to get out in the market. You can now buy uh, a a small number of TVs with built-in ATSC 3.0 tuners. You have to get an antenna and about, I think some 65 or 60, I don't remember what the exact number is. uh, Markets right now are broadcasting in 4K Mm-hmm. And they're supposed to be up to almost 100 by the end of the year. But again, you have to either buy a tuner, and I don't think the 4K tuners are available yet, or get a TV, which would have to be a brand new TV this year model, with an ATSC.3.0 tuner in them. So the only way that anybody's going to be able to get 8K programming is by streaming. Um, and and if it takes 24K, um, 24 megabits per second to get 4K, you can imagine it's going to take a hundred, a minimum uh, bandwidth of a hundred megabit per second connectivity to get 8K. And right now, given Wi-Fi and even 5G, that's a tall order for a huge part of the country. So mm-hmm. what you're relying upon now is the TV's ability to upconvert. And considering that most content is 2K, and if People still own large DVD libraries, which is maybe 720 um, if or 1080. If that, that if stuff that. looks awful up converted unless you have a wonderful algorithm. Mm-hmm. No, so, you're, you're, well, you're not making the uh, Samsungs, the Sonys, and uh, the uh, even the TCLs of the world feel good. The fact because I, 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 what I hear is yes, it's coming, but the motivation to move to it is really not that strong. From your from your each of your perspective. Well, I mean, you're you're going to get your early adopters, and obviously the TV makers have to do this. Um, mm-hmm. The the price on 4K TVs plummeted so quickly, and the margins mm-hmm. became so thin so quickly. I think it took all the TV makers by surprise because usually it's like a five or six year process from the entry level point to we could we barely have making any money on these, and for 4K it's like. Two years. I mean, it collapsed. So these TV makers are almost forced to do 8K as a way to make it easy. I mean, look at how many TV makers have dropped out of the industry in the last five years. That's because they could not make any money selling TVs anymore. And that's the big reason why you're seeing them all pushing 8K because it's the only way they're going to make any money making TVs. And we do have to move to the next topic, but that is an excellent point because, you know, from a life cycle margin standpoint, most it's, it's true of all consumer electronics, including PCs. You make the most margin when you introduce a product at, at, at the beginning of the product life cycle because that's people will pay the premium. 
for that. And, you know, they, of course, they look at it from a blended margin standpoint. How much margin can they make? But you're right. Uh, 4K TVs plummeted in price. And uh, and the 8K stuff really hasn't come online yet in volume to make, you know, to offset that. So that's uh, right. challenging. But let's go to the next topic. But this is a really important topic. This is this um, big announcement by uh, Apple earlier this week. It's a very serious topic. And that um, are each of you concerned about Apple's new uh, plan in iOS 15 to help detect uh, child pornography. And before I go to each of you, you know, I, I applaud Apple for do, trying to do, you know, work around this because it's a ter it's been a ter you know child pornography in the internet has been a terrible problem for years. Um, I mean, this is not a, um, uh, a, a an easy issue for a lot of people to talk about. But and and I, I got and we, I want to be careful because if you critique Apple's capability whether they should do this or not that's not a that should not be construed as well people are a big fan of child pornography it's really about the around privacy issues and around will this create problems in that space and i you know i have read several articles over the last couple of days deep diving on the capability and, and to apple's credit they they believe they're doing everything they possibly can to make sure that false positives don't get um reported but I, you know, none of these algorithms are foolproof and, you know, I, I'm uneasy about this to a degree. So, Rob, let me start with you and get, get your view on this. And, you know, do you really think that Apple's doing the right thing here in terms of moving forward with this? Yeah. So to start, this is a problem from hell. Uh, I prefer the term child sex abuse material because there's no consent involved in any of this. Yes. Uh, it's an enormous problem. And what we know Basically, every company that hosts photos online already does this matching. There is an organization called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, yeah, NICMIT right. for short. Yeah. This field has its own terrible list of abbreviations. Uh, they essentially provide hashed uh, equivalents of the legal material that has been seized in investigations. You can then match digitally to see has someone uploaded anything that matches this. And year after year, whether it's Facebook or Google Photos, uh, companies that host online photos catch a lot of people trying to share this stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. And until now, Apple, you can look this up in these companies' transparency reports, has filed relatively few reports of legal material that shows up in this NICMIC uh, matching process. What they're proposing to do now is to fix that. But the weird thing is they're not doing it with photos already stored in Apple Photos, your iCloud storage. They're going to do this on your devices, mm. uh, whether it's you know an iPhone or an iPad or a Mac or in the next versions of their operating systems. Uh, it's the same basic process. So what has people weirded out is, number one, that Apple is doing this on your own device. You know, you sort of accept the cloud. It's really someone else's computer. So if you put a photo there, you can't be surprised if someone's going to do some sort of scan of it. Um, but on your own device, that feels different. Uh, I think the more substantive criticism here is because Apple has built a technology to look on the contents of this iPad and see if there's something that is not allowed. What if a government elsewhere in the world that is more attuned to policing political dissent decides, yeah. Apple, take this tool you already made and give us a version of that. Maybe morph it, the morph it to something else. China yeah. doesn't want images of the tank man from Tiananmen Square to show up online. And in the past, when Apple has been asked to rewrite its tools, 
that FBI case with the locked iPhone, they could say, we can't, we don't have any tool on the shelf. The iPhone doesn't work this way. And now they have to say, well, it's our policy. We'll refuse any such attempt. And what I don't get is why they've built this technologically, technically impressive system to this on-device matching, you know, with these lots of attempts to make sure that, you know, an individual photo of your kid taking a bath is not going to trigger this. It would have to be some unspecified amount, but a lot to yield to a human review why they don't just scan stuff in iCloud photos. Right. And that's what I've seen is this is a prelude to Apple doing end-to-end encryption on that because this way on device would be the only way for them to do this sort of screening of stuff that would otherwise be invisible once it gets encrypted end-to-end and stored on its server as this unreadable scrambled blob. No, I, I think you're right. You've got a couple of things there that uh, – you know, really, you know, make a lot of sense to me in that if you apply this uh, to what could happen if this technology was more at the behest of China or some other country, it can get very dangerous. Uh, get very, da- it has the potential of being very dangerous. And let's face it, you know, Apple has had a bit of a spotty record dealing with China. You know, I mean, they probably have a better record than most companies, but they have given in. There's num- numerous examples where they've given in on certain content where. The con, you know, music content would be allowed in the United States, but they, 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 there's problems with Chinese censors that won't let them sell that content on, you know, China's version of the uh, of Apple Music, and um, you know, I guess where I come about this, I want to get Stewart's reaction to this. Yes, the local capability is really where is really the interesting part of this discussion is, but for for me, if there was a false positive, there should be a capability that if someone gets flagged for this. And the content turns out to be in the one in the, I think the, the article that I saw that the, oh, there's a one in a trillion chance that the wrong content could get flagged. But let's just say that happened. There should be a provision that that record gets expunged forever. I don't want someone's name that's totally innocent in a database that says, well, yeah, this person was cleared, uh, but they, they were flagged because it might have been some um, questionable content. And I don't know whether that whether that provision is in there that you know if you do get flagged accidentally and you turn you turn out to be completely innocent or it's not uh, child porn, that person should not be flagged in a database. I'm sorry, I just feel very strongly about that. So, Stuart, let me get your reaction to the uh, to the conversation so far. Well, my first reaction is I probably have more questions than I have answers about this, um, but this harkens back to our earlier conversation about regulating content. And I think when you start crossing the line into regulating content, you cross into very dangerous territory. And where this topic is concerned, you're also also talking about morality. One person's child pornography is another person's picture of their five-year-old child um, swimming in a swimming pool, not wearing a top, which is a completely innocent sort of thing. Or as we said before, you know, pictures of a kid taking your kid taking a bath. Isn't he or she adorable? So I, I, it, it's the whole idea of a private company deciding what is or isn't good or bad. I think just as we were talking about before, that's a, that's a real, and I hate to use the term, wow. slippery slope. And once you, once somebody is flagged, erasing it is, is locking the barn door <laughs> and the horse has been stolen. Yeah. Once you are flagged, I mean, once, I mean, how many times you hear somebody accuse of something and they can never get rid of that stink. Not much. No, 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 what they do. 
That's so happened. I, I have a lot more questions about this than answers. We got to be clear about definitions. So this is not just content. These these pictures, these videos happen because of horrible things are done to kids. Oh, and I'm not disputing that. They're on the right, but I'm not illegal. Right. There's no question about that. The, no one can test that. You know, you can say, how do we go about addressing this? There are big problems that the worst offenders, they're not posting photos to Google or to iCloud. They're using some encrypted rings. They're right. very smart people at the FBI and law enforcement who work very hard to get into these gangs and, and catch these people and lock them away, hopefully forever. Uh, but this is something that a company like Apple that hosts photos has to do. Well, what, you know, I, I sort of there are a couple of things I want to clarify about this. A, according to Tim Cook, they're only looking at iCloud. They're not going to look at your devices. So that's according to Apple. I don't know whether we could take it thing to iCloud. So it's right. functionally you could turn it off. Well, but you can yeah, turn, turn it off. Yes, turn on. off iCloud Sync. Yes, that that's is not happening on your device. So he's not actually going to look at your device physically. He's going to look at the storage. The other, the other trillion, trillion, you know, making a mistake every trillion, that's from Apple. And that's just bogus with a capital B, right? We all know these algorithms make mistakes all the time, constantly, every day. It's why we don't use them for everything, right? Because they're so error-ridden. So once you start using an algorithm like that, you're already in danger zone of making a lot of mistakes. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And the other issue, at least, you know, here is... There's a rule about unreasonable search, right? You can't come into my room here and start searching my room randomly just because you think maybe I might have something that might possibly be illegal. And that's what you're talking about. Apple saying, you know what? I'm going to search everybody. You're not the government. Everybody. I'm going to search everybody, even though I have no reason to think that Mark, Rob, Stuart, or John have anything illegal on their iCloud, but I'm going to search it anyway. And that the, whole the idea is a very odd position to put themselves in, right? Uh, the, yeah. the phrase you're searching for is probable cause. And right. Well, but your unreasonable cause. search. There's a you have a defense. There's you're not allowed to just walk into somebody's house. Just what they Yeah, doing. but Apple's a private entity, and what you're talking about is is government entity. Doesn't matter. Those are two different sets of rules. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, but that, I have to buy an iPhone. I don't have an iPhone in front of me. Uh, right, but but they're going to report it, Stuart. So they are assuming that role, right? They're yeah. not just saying I'm going to take it off. If they're acting as a government it. agent, right? And now I'm going to report it, and I'm going to report you to Mark's point. And that's just, I mean, ethically speaking, they're just in a in a they've take that's not a step they really should take. You know, the uh, utilitarians, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley people tend to be utilitarians. It doesn't matter how I get there. It's the end result that counts and ethics, you know? <laughs> and so they don't really care how I get there. It's the end result. So I get why it might seem like a good idea if I could prevent some of this terrible stuff from happening. And so to their way of thinking, maybe it's a good idea, but getting there, they're going to cross a lot of other ethical bands. Are, are, this is one of the questions I had. Are they reporting what they find to government authorities? Well, yes and no. Photo DNA. Microsoft does this, Google, right. Facebook. The scanning of photos that get synced to the cloud, that, right. if it's not legally required, it is basically the cost of doing business. And you are, in fact, using someone else's computer. The issue here is Apple has done this sort of impressive clever workaround to 
do this sort of screening as if your photos were on iCloud, except it's only happening on your own device, which is funny in the sense that Apple usually says on device intelligence is privacy preserving. You know, Apple Maps doesn't upload your history to the cloud. It does all that stuff on your device. But here, the on-device intelligence feels different because it's not actually helping you directly. Uh, and doing it the traditional way where the photos leave your device, then they can get scanned. You know, you sort of accept that. And it's also, it's Apple, so everyone loses their mind whenever they're in the headlines. Well, we could we could talk about this. Uh, this is a topic that I do want to return to at right. some point. This is, uh, it's going to be yep. interesting to see how the public agrees this when iOS 15 comes out in a few weeks. Um, because like everything else, this did not get a lot of coverage until a few days ago. I'm sure that was done by design, by the way. Apple did not. <laughs> want to, they, they certainly did not want to mention this at WWDC right. a few weeks ago. Oh, did they? But, um, but you know, <laughs> the only thing I'll, I'll, I'll close on is that I just hope that if the capability is implemented, and I know it's, this is not going to happen, but I, call me um, you know, forever, uh, forever optimist about this. I just hope that the capability, if someone gets flagged in this, that there is some type of expungement process. Yeah. And, the, and the answer is probably no, because once a digital record created, it, it's never unmade. It's, it's right. impossible to make that. But we'll return to this topic because it's such a, a crucial one. Uh, Rob, John, and Stuart, listen, thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons on YouTube and Apple Podcasts, assuming, of course, you like the uh, the podcast. And uh, please visit Parks Associates at www.parkassociates.com uh, for more information about all the wonderful uh, research products and deliverables that we provide. And until next time, have a great week. <laughs>